0: When it comes to patient education, yeah, you've got knowledge, you've got experience. This episode is about some things you might not have been taught that can help you improve your patient education. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Anne Marie Liebel, and this is 10 Minutes to Better Patient Communication from Health Communication Partners, an independent health equity focused education and communication consultancy. That's right, consultancy. If your organization needs expert help on any topic in this series, visit healthcommunicationpartners.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Maven Roth Group. For many people, the hardships and changes resulting from the pandemic have shifted priorities. The same old messages just don't resonate. Because of this, Maven Roth is helping organizations evolve their messaging to better meet their audience's new priorities. Maven Roth can refresh your marketing to reflect today's changes. Visit mavenroth.com. Now, you know patient education is important. I don't have to tell you that how you spend your time with your patient has been shown to have an impact on numerous health outcomes, on patient satisfaction, and on patient engagement. And you might be under other kinds of pressures as well. One surgeon explained to me that the dominant attitude toward patient education was, quote, tell them what they need to know and hope they heard. Well, he wanted to do better than that, (laughs) and I want to help you do better than that. So in this episode, I'm going to share some research and some concepts that will help you think differently about your patient education, ways that you can do better or be better at patient education. And for this, I want to go back to something I shared a few years ago. Here's that show. It may have been a while since you thought in a formal way about why you're doing what you're doing when you educate your patients, but you want to reach patients and you don't want to waste anyone's time. So I'm going to give you two things to keep in mind about learners and learning for the next time you educate a patient. Number one, everyone can learn. There are plenty of pressures against thinking about your patients as learners. Time is one of them, various organizational constraints are another, but there are also subtler pressures against seeing your patients as capable learners. Sometimes patients can be framed or positioned in negative ways by research, theories, policies, or everyday taken-for-granted arrangements In an organization. And that's what I want to draw your attention to now. One way this happens is through a deficit perspective, which I've talked about before. A deficit perspective is anything that maintains a focus on what a patient doesn't understand or doesn't do, what a patient's situation lacks, what his or her community can't provide. And this perspective is common. As adult literacy researcher and educator Alan Rogers points out in the book Adult Literacy and Development, quote, such approaches were, and still are, supported by international agencies, especially some UN bodies. Rather than start where they are, with what learners can do and are doing, these programs stress the deficit approach, what learners cannot do or do not do, end quote. Of course, the point is not to ignore what your patient needs, but to see your patient as more than a collection of needs. This might remind you of patient-centeredness, moving towards seeing the patient as, well, more than a collection of health problems. It's about interacting with the patient as a whole person, with a full life and as part of multiple communities. When we start where they are, the goal of education becomes expanding. Expanding and extending what the patient is already doing in order to help get his or her needs met. Now, I'm also going to ask you to step back and let yourself consider, and consider again, any theory, policy, strategy, or research, or even just a take-it-for-granted way of doing something that implies some people can't learn. Now, you may have run into such material already. It can take the form of statements that attempt to, let's say, settle the matter once and for all on such issues as what counts as learning, what good learning looks like, who counts as learners, and what good learners do. The implication is often that those who do not fit that definition are somehow not learning, or no longer learning, or not interested in learning. So be on guard for implications that those kind of people just can't learn. Number two, learning is individual and interactional. For about 50 years, researchers have studied adult learning as well as document the range and variation of where, why, how, and with whom it happens. Learning sciences, a related field, is also robust. Both of these fields continue to evolve and add to what we know about learning and adult learning. They inform other fields like human-centered design, smart gaming, artificial intelligence. I mention this, so you'll take a good hard look at any strategy, theory, research, or policy that's gonna tell you the way it is when it comes to learning or adult learning. Anything that smells like oversimplification. You're right to be suspicious. When someone veers into sounding like they know what learning is all about and they're going to explain the secret to you, (laughs) kind of like those banner ads for one weird trick that gives you a flat belly. That's not to say we've learned nothing about learning over the last 50 years. It's just complicated, more complicated than it's sometimes convenient to admit. But I'm not going to leave you hanging. I will tell you two things to keep in mind when it comes to patient education. And yes, I don't want to run the risk of getting into the weird trick flat belly territory here. So I will cautiously say what I'm sharing is an area where there is modest agreement across theories and theorists. You're likely familiar with one of the adult learning theories that came about in the first half of the 20th century because it's become such a popular metaphor, the brain as computer, right? This is the idea that learning is something that happens inside a lone individual's head. This was the cognitive revolution. It's very cool. It aligns with a lot of other fields of study, including brain research. At the same time, other research on learning found that these computer brains of ours are also networked. This, as anthropologist Fred Erickson points out in the Journal of Learning Sciences, this is the interaction revolution. We learn in interaction with other people. Sometimes this is called the social turn. Hey, and if you really want to play with this metaphor, you could imagine how much learning you can do with your computer or mobile device when it is not hooked up to a network. So when it comes to learning as a subject of study, It may be that two theories are better than one. Learning does, of course, happen in people's heads, but it is also social. We learn through interaction with people, texts, videos, and nearly limitless features of our environments. But what does this mean for you and patient education? Remember, everyone can learn, so don't give time to those who might suggest otherwise about your patients. I invite you to, as Alan Rogers said in the above quote, start where they are. See your patients as people who are already making sense of their health and doing the best they can to take care of their bodies. When it comes to the topic or goal of your patient education, ask your patients what they already can do and are doing and what they already care about in that area learning is individual and social. Though you want to continue to do your best and provide information in multiple modes, the pressure is off you to do it all in your time with the patient. This is because some learning will happen as your patient interacts with the material you share and also with his or her various social groups. So, Make sure there is something your patient can take home and share with others. The learning continues when they leave you, and that's a good thing. If you're interested in taking your language use seriously, why not start with your metaphors? I've written a workshop just for you that shows you how to break down the metaphors you use, understand their cognitive and affective aspects, and evaluate them in use, on demand, right here at healthcommunicationpartners.com. I'm Dr. Anne-Marie Liebel, and this has been 10 Minutes to Better Patient Communication. Thanks for listening to 10 Minutes to Better Patient Communication from Health Communication Partners, LLC. Find us at healthcommunicationpartners.com.